All right, tonight we conclude 1 Corinthians. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Next week, Lord willing, we'll start 2 Corinthians and uh, see if we can get through it faster. Um, but when I was in college, some of y'all know, I didn't feel called to the ministry at that point, so I, I thought I was going to be in television, and I interned at Channel 13 in Houston. And that was the station I had watched growing up, which I found really, it's kind of a long story how I ended up there. Uh, it was a definite God thing, or it seemed like to me. But I was so excited because I'd watched all these people growing up, and it's, I found it's one thing to know someone from afar and know them by reputation and another thing to actually get to know them. In some cases, I was disappointed because some of those people weren't very nice. In, others, in other cases, I, I found out they were really good people. So it's, you know, what my experience in the television world is people on TV are like people in the real world. Some of them are, are rotten and some of, them are, are, some of them are decent and most of them are just average. You know, they're, they're no, there's nothing spectacular about them. Uh, but all that to say, when you get to know someone you've known from afar, your perception of them changes. For instance, when Carrie met me, I happened to be driving a sports car. I, it's kind of a long story, but I ended up buying an 86 Camaro uh, with my 4-H money, and I was really proud of that car. And she just instantly assumed, well, he must be stuck up. And then she got to know me and found out I had really no reason to be stuck up. So uh, that her perception changed, thankfully. Here at the end of the first Corinthians, in Paul's closing comments, you know, we, we often, when we're reading, we're studying on our own the, the letters of the New Testament, and when someone's preaching through them, we usually just kind of skip over or ignore these ending comments. But they reveal a lot about Paul's heart. And remember, this isn't just trivial detail, because this is an apostle of God, and the words that he writes here are inspired by the Holy Spirit. So you're not just getting to know Paul, you're getting to know the heart of God. He is putting on paper what God told him to say. And so this reveals to us what God is like. And in this passage, we find out three things about him. One of them is not surprising, but two that are. So let's read, starting with verse 5. He writes, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. By the way, as with so much of these kinds of things, history shows that Paul didn't actually follow that plan. Things turned out differently, as we'll see when we get into our study of 2 Corinthians, but that's just a side note. Verse 7, For I do not want to see you now just in passing, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers." Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with, his older, with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints." Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence. 
for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So before I get into the three things we learn about Paul, let me just point out some interesting details in those last few verses. First of all, when he says the churches of Asia send you greetings. We see this in all of Paul's letters and in the letters of John and the letters of Peter, this idea that, okay, I'm, I'm over here in Ephesus, but I'm writing to you in Corinth and all these people here and all the other churches in this area, they're praying for you, they're lifting you up, they wanted to say hi to you. And what that should show us is that in those days, there was no competition between churches. And we're just kind of take it for granted these days that there's going to be competition. Competition certainly between denominations, but even between fellow churches of the same denomination. And when we hear that a church down the road is growing real fast by leaps and bounds, there's a part of us that gets a little resentful. And well, you know, they're, they're probably just watering down the gospel and that's why they're gaining so many people. And, and well, I, I don't think much of that church or whatever. Well, that didn't exist in the, in the old world. You know why? They had to stick together. They were a minority. They, they didn't have, there, there was no need, there was no room for pettiness and bickering. Besides which, in those days, there was pretty much one church per town. And so it didn't make sense to, to get mad at the church in Ephesus because they were growing faster than you were in Corinth because it's not as though they were taking away any of your members. They, if you were a Christian who lived in Ephesus, you went to that church. If you were a, church, a Christian in Corinth, you went to that church. There wasn't this kind of competition. And, and I think that should make us think, yeah, that's the way it ought to be for us too. And I wonder, I wonder if that's going to change as we see America growing less and less culturally Christian. And what I mean by that is, and I've shared this with you before, most of us grew up in a world where if you wanted to do business anywhere outside of a big, big city, and maybe even in some cases in those, if you wanted to be respected in your community, you had to be a part of a church. You know, Peter Drucker, the great business guru, writes that when he first, his first big job, he first time he went into, and this is in New York City, I think in the 1950s, he went into a bank to, to get a loan, and they said, well, tell us, what church or synagogue do you attend? And he said, well, what difference does that make? And they said, well, that helps us know whether we trust you enough to lend you money. Can you imagine somebody saying that today? We live in a very different world. So that's what I mean when I say less culturally Christian. I don't... I know I'm going off on a tangent here, but I think it's an important one. Honestly, I don't think there's any less genuine followers of Jesus today than there were 50 years ago. But today, it's much less expected. It's much less culturally rewarded to identify yourself as a Christian. And so you're going to see fewer and fewer people who call themselves Christian. More and more people who are going to see Christianity as something outdated and something that's you know should be left out of the, the cultural uh, conversation. And I think that, that sense that we're going to get over the next 20, 30 years that we're more of a minority than a majority is going to force us to stop being so petty and to look at our brothers and sisters in other churches and say, well, we're on the same team. You may raise your hands during worship. You may speak in tongues. And over here, you may, you may uh, you know, go to mass and kneel during worship. And over here, we may do it differently. 
but we're all worshiping the same God. And I think that's going to be a good thing, a good thing that comes out of a, an uncomfortable thing. When he mentions Aquila and Prisca, Prisca is a, a sort of a nickname for Priscilla. We see this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, mentioned several times in the New Testament. You know, they never speak in the New Testament. We never he hear any words from them. They never wrote any scripture. And yet we see them all over the works, all over the life of Paul in the book of Acts and in his letters. Well, here's what we know about them. They, they were a married couple. They were, they were a working couple. They, they, they were in the industry of tent making like Paul. And they were strong believers. This lay couple actually took Apollos. Apollos was this gifted young preacher who didn't really know everything there was to know about the Lord. His, his theology was weak, but his gifts were strong. And this lay couple, Aquila and Priscilla, took him under their wing and taught him the truth. Now, how many of you would feel qualified? How many people in our church who are, who are just ordinary members, non-seminary trained, would feel like, well, I could take a young preacher and, and sit down with him and over the period of a few months, teach him all there was to know about scripture and theology so he would be sound in his preaching? That speaks well of this couple. Uh, they were also people who were willing to move wherever the Lord needed them. When Paul first met them, it was in the city of Corinth. The only reason they were in Corinth was they'd been run out of Rome because Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome. So they moved from Rome to Corinth. They met Paul, and then they moved from Corinth to Ephesus because that's where they were needed. That's where that church needed help in growing in Christ. And then by the end of the New Testament, they're in Rome, and they're back in Rome because Claudius is now dead, and they're leaders in the church there. So this was a couple who they moved not because of work. They moved because of the gospel. We, we see an opportunity over here, and that's where we're going to go. What a, what a vision of what a Christian marriage should be. Not just two people who love each other and are faithful to each other. Now, of course, that should be part of it. But they also have a, have a common mission. They serve the Lord together. And then there's that line, uh, which is repeated in several different parts of the Bible in verse 20. Greet one another with a holy kiss. You ever wondered why we don't do that? Don't worry, I'm not trying to revive the practice. Why don't we do that? Why don't we take that command literally? Well, I think it's, it's like the same, it's the same reason why we don't take Jesus literally when he says, I've washed your feet, now I want you to do this to one another. We know that that meant something in that culture that it doesn't mean today. If you came to church on Sunday and somebody came up to you with a basin of water and pulled your shoes off and started rubbing your feet, your response would not be, oh my goodness, how wonderful. Your response would probably be, this is the last time I come to this church. Because whereas in the ancient world, that was a gift, that was, that was a necessary thing. In our culture, it's not. The same with the holy kiss. The kiss, kissing in our culture is different than it was in theirs. In their culture, people of the same gender kissed each other and it was a greeting. Here, it's not. And we're not going to start. In the ancient world, and in that culture, in fact, to kiss someone was to say, I greet you as a brother or a sister. To kiss someone, especially after there's been contention, was a way of saying, we've made peace, we've reconciled, we're brothers and sisters again. So what Paul is really saying here is get along with each other. Maintain the peace. Don't, don't let there be, because remember, Corinth, one of their problems was they had factions in the church. They had divisions. And Paul is saying, greet one another with a holy kiss. What he's saying is, get to the point where every member of your church can feel like, 
you and I are on the same page. You and I are good with each other. There's no rivalry. There's no contention. There's no division. We're right with each other. And then the final thing I want to show before I get into the outline is when he says in verse 22, he says, our Lord come. That's another phrase that's used often in scripture. It's the Greek word Maranatha. You've probably seen this in Christian literature. Maranatha means come Lord Jesus or our Lord come. And that should be the cry of our hearts. That was the attitude of the first generation of Christians. And it's been the attitude of Christians down through the centuries. I just don't know that it's so much the attitude of American Christians today. If you put somebody, if you put the average American Christian on a lie detector and ask them, so do you get excited when you think about the return of Jesus? I think most of them would say, honestly, no, I'm, I'm not ready for that. And that's a shame because our, our heart's cry should be, come Lord Jesus, in good times and in bad. In bad times, we should say, come Lord Jesus, because I'm tired of this world being this way. And in good times, we should say, come Lord Jesus, because what I'm experiencing now is just a foretaste of what you're going to bring. That should be the cry of our hearts. Come Lord Jesus. Now, as I said at the beginning, when you read this final section of Corinthians, it reveals two, three things about Paul. One that's, one that's not surprising and two that are. So the one that's not surprising, you see in here his hatred for false doctrine, for false teaching. In verse 13, when he says, and I'll read it again, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Sounds like the words of a commanding officer to his troops before a battle, doesn't it? You know, here in Texas, the most famous battle fought on Texas soil is the Battle of the Alamo. You can, you can practically hear Travis saying this to those few hundred Texans as those thousands of Mexican soldiers are outside. Be strong. Watch, keep watch. Don't give up. Stand up like men. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about the constant attack of the enemy, which is to water down the truth of the gospel. He can't steal our salvation. But if he gets us off track, if he gets us uh, arguing about and discussing and preaching and teaching things that are maybe moral, maybe important, but not the gospel, then he is one. Then he blunts our impact. And if, if he gets us preaching things that aren't even true, then he's really one. And that is always the danger of any church. And there's always the danger within Christianity. We are under attack. So be strong in the faith. Stand firm in what you believe. Know, every Christian should know, these are the essentials. These are the things which you and I ought to be willing to die for. And then over here, these are the other things that are interesting to discuss, and people of goodwill can disagree and still worship together in the same church. Right? We need to know the difference between those two things. And so on the one hand, the, the, in, those, in that second category, there are things that if someone in your life group stands up and teaches, or if I say something from the pulpit and you say, well, I'm not sure I agree with that. If it's in that category of the things that aren't totally clear, then you and I can continue to worship together, no problem. But if it's in that first category of these are the essentials, this is what makes God who he is. This is what, this is my, what makes Jesus our savior. This is what separates Christianity from all those other religions, then you need to speak up. But notice verse 14. Right after he said those words of stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, he says, let all that you do be done in love. Remember, 
He gave a whole chapter, chapter 13, to defining what that looks like. If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I am nothing. If I sacrifice my body, if I give everything that I have, but I have not love, I am nothing, right? Love is putting others first. And I think it's fitting that those two verses are side by side. Stand firm in the faith, stand up for what you believe in, be strong, don't give an inch on the doctrines of the Christian faith, but even in that, you do it in love. You don't treat someone like a horrible person, you don't treat someone like an enemy, you go to them in love. And, and honestly, there are a lot of Christians who have a hard time with either one or the other of those. There are Christians who are very kind-hearted and, and they find it easy to, to love others, but they don't have the spine to stand up when things that are going on, things are going on in the church that need to be confronted. And then there are other Christians who, they find it very easy to be the, the police officer who walks around and points out the flaws and the, and the failings of others, but they don't do it lovingly. And Paul says those two are both essential. They're both essential. Do everything you do in love. So that's not surprising. We've known that about Paul. We've seen that in Paul all through the scriptures. And here's some, the second thing we see is kind of somewhat surprising. And that is that Paul was humble about his plans. We think of Paul as being this very in-charge human being who always knew what to do. But look at how often he says things like, well, perhaps I will go here, or if the Lord permits, I will go there. You can count several times just in this last passage. I want to go see you. I want to, I want to be with you if the Lord permits. Now, why does he say that? Well, we can look at the fact that travel was a lot more difficult back then. You know, it's been interesting for us and humbling for us as, as Americans. We gotten used to being in charge of our own circumstances. But this last year, we've had to change plans a lot, haven't we? It's been humbling. Well, that was the world Paul lived in all the time. You never said, oh, I know a year from now I'm going to be over here because you didn't know there might be a war. There might be a famine. There might be a plague. You might die before then. So Paul was very humble. And, and the word of God commands us in James 4.15 to make plans tentatively, to always say, if the Lord wills, I will go here or go there. Proverbs 16.9 says, in his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. So it is wise of us, it is wise of us always, whenever we're making plans to say, well, here's what I think I'm going to do, but only if that's according to God's plan. God knows and I don't. Or as someone else has said, man plans and God laughs, right? And yet at the same time, Paul was humble about his travel plans. And at the same time he says, and yet there's a great door for ministry here. A great door for ministry. That's a great image for us. I, I remember when I was younger, reading for the first time the book Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. It was a life-changing book for me. One of the principles that stuck with me from that is, he said, if you want to be in the center of God's will, you look for where God is working in the world around you and join him there. And that was a revolutionary thought to me because I always thought it was about me coming to God and saying, okay, okay, God, tell me what to do, and then just waiting, and there would be some kind of flash of insight. I just thought... And then part of this was because the preachers I listened to growing up always said, and then the Lord told me to go talk to that person over there. Well, that never happened to me. But after I read that book, I realized, oh, instead of waiting for some flash of insight, instead of waiting for some audible voice to come down from heaven, why don't I just look and see, well, this person's asking questions about spiritual things. Obviously, the Holy Spirit's working in their heart. I better go over there and see if I can answer their questions. 
Well, this person's struggling. Well, I know God cares about the people who are weeping. I better go and pray for them. Look to where God is working and go there. Paul had seen God is working in this place and I, I need to stay here in Ephesus for now. Now, here's the very surprising thing. The third thing we learn about Paul from this passage. And that is that Paul was way more sensitive than we give him credit for. Way more sensitive to the needs and the feelings of his friends in Corinth. There was, some of y'all remember last fall, I did a long series on the life of Paul and, and I got a great compliment in the midst of that series. A woman came to me and she said, you know, I never have liked Paul, but now I think I do. And I thought that was an interesting comment. As I talked to her more, I realized she'd grown up in a very legalistic church where the preachers just preached judgment and, 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 and legalism, and a lot of their preaching was from Paul. And so she just associated Paul with harshness and, and beating people down and trying to keep people in line. And once you get to know him a little better through the Word of God, you see that he was different than that. Notice in verses 10 and 11, he asks the Corinthians, he said, when Timothy gets there, treat him well. Don't despise him. Send him on his way in peace. We know about, here's what we know about Timothy. He was a younger man. Paul considered him his son in the faith, the, the son he never had. From, from his letters to Timothy, we know that Paul thought that Timothy was a little too timid. God has not given you a spirit of fear, he said, but a spirit of power and love and, and self-control. So Paul was afraid because the Corinthians were a contentious church. And there were people in the Corinthian church, Paul knew, that didn't like him. He was afraid perhaps some of them might take that out on his young friend Timothy. And a young guy like that, a, a guy who wasn't, hadn't built that hard bark, uh, that thick skin around him like Paul had, might get discouraged. That can easily happen to people in the ministry. And I know too many who've, to whom that's happened. So Paul wanted to, uh, wanted to prepare the way for his friend. Be nice to him. Be kind to him. In verse 12, he mentions Apollos. Remember, at the start of the book, we, we learned that there was a fan club for Apollos in the Corinthian church. There were people who said, oh, I'm on, I'm on team Apollos. Well, I'm on team Peter. Well, I'm on team Paul. It's easy to see why people loved Apollos in Corinth, because he was a gifted speaker. Paul, in contrast, was apparently not a gifted speaker. He was a little more dull when he spoke. I mean, remember, he's the guy who killed a kid because he preached too long and the kid fell out of the window and Paul had to go down and revive him. So, you know, Apollos was probably electrifying when he, when he spoke. And, and, and so Paul says, listen, I want to apologize to you. I tried to get Apollos to come to you. What it, what it says to me is there were, there were people in the church in Corinth who had said, boy, send Apollos. When you, when you write back to us, make sure Apollos comes because we miss him. And so he writes now, he says, I tried to get him to come, but he was not willing. Now, he doesn't say why. Maybe, and some scholars, this is their speculation, maybe Apollos said, I don't want to go down there because there's a little group of people that think I'm the bomb and I don't want to feed that beast. I don't want to, I don't want to feed into their idolatry of me. They've made more out of me than, than what I should be. And so I don't want to go down there and stoke that flame. And if that's why Apollos didn't go, that really speaks well of him, doesn't it? Because I think most preachers, myself included, find it irresistible to be around people who adore you. Boy, you just want to hear that praise, right? Well, enough about me. What do you think of me? You know, that kind of thing. Um, but Apollos 
apparently wasn't that kind of guy. But it certainly speaks well of Paul that he didn't consider Apollos his rival. Instead, he wrote to this faction and said, listen, I know you wanted to see him, and he'll come when he's ready, and I try to get him to come. He's just not there now. Shows a sensitivity on Paul's part that you don't expect. Verses 15 and 18, he starts talking about these people named like Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. Who are these people? They're only mentioned here in the scriptures. And all we know about them is Stephanatus and his family were the first ones Paul baptized when he got to the region of Corinth. And it's pretty obvious they're the ones who brought Paul the letter from the Corinthians that he's responding to. So they're probably the ones who brought this letter back to Corinth. And he spends several verses saying how good these men are. Take good care of them. And I want you to imagine that you're one of those three men, Stephanatus or Fortunatus or Achaicus. Remember, the first Sunday the church gathered after this letter came, the pastor would have gotten up and read the letter as Scripture to the people. How cheerful would it be for you to hear your name mentioned by the apostle in this way? And that's the reason he did it. And then finally, I want you to see how much he loved these people. I think hopefully by now you've seen the Corinthian church was a difficult church. They had their issues. I would not have wanted to be the pastor of First Baptist Corinth. And Paul has addressed those issues, and he's been very frank. And in fact, when we get to 2 Corinthians, we'll find out they didn't respond to some of Paul's words in a, in a kind way. And yet he wants them to know, again, verse 7, I do not want to have, I don't want to see you now just in passing. I want to spend some time with you. And his last words, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Those are not just words. Those are not just a, a flowery way to end a letter. He meant them. In spite of all the hard things he had to say to them, he wanted them to know at the end, I love you. I care about you. And it's good to know that God inspired those words that God inspired his apostle to be that sensitive. I went to college. One of my friends in college was a young woman who was a devout Catholic. And I'd grown up around a lot of Catholics, like I said, in church a couple weeks ago. Uh, but this is, you know, we were now a little older. We're in college. So we got to talking about differences between our church. Now, this is not me trying to pick on the Roman Catholic Church. I, I honestly think that when we get to heaven and stand before the Lord, every denomination is going to have to answer for something. And I'm sure there will be plenty of things that God will take us Baptists to task for. But one of the questions I had for her, and I still feel this way, is why do you, why do y'all feel like you can't talk to God directly? You confess to a priest instead of to God. You pray to saints instead of to God. You even pray to Mary. And she said, well, first of all, we don't worship Mary. I just want you to know that. We don't worship her. She was just a woman. I said, well, yeah, but why do you pray to her? Now, keep in mind, this is not a priest I'm talking to. This is uh, just a devout young Catholic. So I don't know if her words are the official line, but her answer was, well, it's sort of like when you, when you ask a friend to pray for you. When you go to somebody and say, I'm going through this, would you pray for me? We're just asking somebody who's already in heaven to pray for us. And if I really want someone who has some clout, why not talk to the mother of Jesus herself? Surely she'll be able to talk to him and, and get some things done. And I said, okay, I guess that makes sense, but why not just talk directly to him? 
And this was her response. Again, not saying this is the official Catholic line, but this was her response. Well, remember when you were little and you wanted to ask for something, didn't you find it easier to talk to your mom than to your dad? Because weren't you a little bit afraid of your dad? But mom was a little more tender and sweet and you could approach her a little more easily. And what I want to say to that is this, the end of, uh, of 1 Corinthians, as well as countless other scriptures, should show us that God is a tender-hearted, loving father who never, ever, ever looks at one of his children who's come to him on his knees saying, Father, give me this, and says, I don't have time for you. How dare you bother me right now? Or how dare you come to me after the things you've done lately? He's never that way. His heart is always for us. He cares about us. He cares about the things that we think are trivial. He cares about the things that if we were to complain about them out loud, we would be afraid that others would think we're just whiners. But when we talk to God about them, they matter to him. He cares for us. He is, in the words of Paul, the God of all comfort. Never, ever forget that. Is he a God who is mighty and powerful and, and created the universe with his own hands? Absolutely. Is he a God who is righteous and who hates sin? Absolutely. Yes. But is he a God who is a loving and tender father who you can go to for anything? Yes. Yes. I heard another preacher say, the only person who can wake a king up in the middle of the night asking for a glass of water is the king's child, and that's us. We can come to the king in the middle of the night and ask him for anything, and he will not turn us away. So we are blessed. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight so thankful that you are such a loving and good Father. Let us not take that for granted, but also, Lord, let us not miss it and assume that you're angry or hard to, hard to please or aloof from us. But I pray that we would boldly approach the throne of grace because you bought us that, that privilege at the cross. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.